And the Bible passage I will uh, be looking at this morning is Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 7, fairly short passage. And uh, I'm cheating a little bit on this one, I'll be honest with you. We have a a prayer meeting. I should have warned you about uh, my prayers sometimes. They can get really long. I did try to edit myself a little this evening, uh, but we have uh, Wednesday evening, we have prayer meetings and then a Bible study uh, while youth is meeting. It takes about uh, an hour and a half um, as we do this, and, and it's super casual. It's really open-ended. Uh, it's, it's a lot of talking uh, as we look at the passage together, uh, and originally, a few weeks ago, I had a different passage in mind, uh, but we're going to start Daniel in our prayer meetings. And as I started reading Daniel, I thought, this is great stuff. And, and so uh, I didn't want to leave it. So I, I kept studying it more and more. And then uh, as the day approached, I thought, well, I don't have time to go back and do that other passage I was thinking of. I want to go with Daniel. Uh, so here we are uh, in Daniel. And I'll read the passage. Uh, it's Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look at it, you will speak loudly in our hearts, that we may be strengthened and comforted by your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was a, a young man, maybe 20, somewhere around there. Uh, I, I was visiting a friend, and this friend had younger siblings, and so they were uh, watching, I believe it was Nickelodeon, something like that. Uh, they were young teenagers. Uh, in fact, one was probably uh, 10 uh, the youngest, but they were watching this show, and it was a game show. I don't know if anyone's being slimed or, or something. I wasn't really paying that close of attention, but uh, I did notice one of the contestants who I didn't know, I didn't know anybody here, but the, the 
kids knew them. Uh, but he was this guy, and he had on four wristwatches. He had two wristwatches on both wrists. And this was back in the time, if you remember, uh, where wristwatches were fashionable and brightly colored, the, the day glow colors. And, and so this contestant had on these four wristwatches, and I didn't think much of it. But at the end of the show, the host made mention of the watches. He said, oh, you got four wristwatches there. Are you keeping track of different time zones? And, and the guy completely missed the humor of that. He got very serious, and he said, well, no, this is a, this is a show of nonconformity. Nonconformity. You know, and, and I thought, if he'd have just said, well, it's fashionable, I'd have accepted that, but nonconformity... And the host was a little stunned, and he, he was still smiling because, you know, those game show hosts, they have to smile all the time. But you could see in his eyes, he didn't quite know how to respond to that. And so the, the guy with the watches, he said, how many watches do you have on? And, and the guy, I have one. He said, well, you see, you're a conformist, but I'm a nonconformist, so I have these four. And in my head, I'm thinking, but you only need one to tell time, Right. You know, if you have one, that's all you really need. And so if this is some kind of sign of nonconformity, it appears that you have conformed to some nonconformist code. Is that what's going on? If you can follow my thought on that, you know, it's those people that want to not, uh, we're going to all be different, but then when you see them, they're all the same. And, and I thought, what? You're just creating this code for yourself in the name of nonconformity and for no real reason. One watch will suit you fine. Now, if you want to say you're being fashionable, I'll give you that. When we look at Daniel, he's, he's going to be nonconformist in what he does. And we're not going to get into his nonconformity with this passage. That comes up very shortly and, and we won't have time for it now, but but he's not going to conform to what they want him to. He and his friends, they're going to do things a little different. But they have a purpose behind what they're doing. There, there's a reason. It's not just to be different. It's because they know who they are. Or as it's sometimes said, they know whose they are. And so they're going to do things a little bit differently. And the reason that they do things differently is are, are reasons that we should keep in our head too as we navigate daily life and once in a while do things maybe a little differently than others do. But the story as it, as it starts is, is um, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who is, by the way, a bad king. Uh, in fact, in 2 Chronicles 36, it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. But he's king uh, in Jerusalem at the time. Nebuchadnezzar is king in Babylon. And what we should point out right away is this idea of Babylon and Jerusalem and what they represent. Because this carries throughout scripture. This idea of Babylon being the people of the world, if you will, and Jerusalem, the people of 
God. These two different cities that will always be opposed to each other. You could start all the way back in the Garden of Eden uh, at, after the fall. And, and God saying uh, about the seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and there's always going to be that conflict. And then you can carry that all the way through to Revelation when John describes the, the coming down of the, the destruction of the, the ungodly ones, the unsaved ones, and, and it's Babylon. It's the city of Babylon that's being destroyed. And the Lord comes with the new Jerusalem. It's, it symbolizes this, this conflict that, that will be right up until Jesus comes back again, the, the people of Babylon and the people of Jerusalem. And so when we come to Daniel, we see, okay, we see what's happening here. The people of the world and the people of God. And these two are permanently opposed to each other. And you're in one of the two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of Babylon or you're in the kingdom of Jerusalem. You're either with the king of Babylon or you're with God. Now Jehoiakim, as I've mentioned, is not a good king. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes, he takes Jerusalem. Now this, this had been prophesied. Uh, loosely, it's been prophesied by Moses back in Deuteronomy 28, where he said, if you don't follow God, you're going to, to serve your enemy. More specifically, uh, Isaiah 39 talks, uh, and he says, behold, the days are coming when, when all this is going to be carried to Babylon, and some of your sons will be taken, and they'll, they'll uh, be in the palace of the king of Babylon. He was pretty specific, and there's some other places, too, uh, where where this has been prophesied. And, and I bring that up because there's this little disconnect between verse 1 and verse 2. If you notice, there's a couple of different perspectives there. In verse 1, we get what we'd call the, the secular history. This is just what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's the facts. That's what happened. From the worldly point of view, there's the news. But from the theological point of view, we see what's happening in verse 2. That actually the Lord gave Jerusalem into the hand of Babylon. The Lord is in charge. He had said this was going to happen because of their disobedience. And, and it does. And, and again, we're back at this two different ways of looking at life. For Nebuchadnezzar, he's thinking, I've won. I've won this battle. But in reality, God is in control of all things. His hand is on the rudder that steers all events. But Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's won, and he thinks he has won dramatically. Uh, and humanly speaking, anyone looking at this would say, yes, he, he has won. Uh, his, the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, it says in, in verse 2, he takes them into the house of, of his God. And this is total, extreme humiliation for Jerusalem. And it does look like Nebuchadnezzar has won 
It does look like his God is greater than Jerusalem's God. That's how everyone would have interpreted it, and that's what it looks like to them. But of course, when we see verse 2, we see now God is still in control, even if it looks a little bad at this time. In fact, it looks really bad at this time. And ultimately, this isn't about judgment, God just judging Jerusalem. There is that element to it. But as you go through the book of Daniel, you'll see that a lot of this is really about God's mercy and grace to his people and God showing himself time and time again that he is the powerful one. He is the one in control. And he will have mercy on his people. And he does act powerfully through Daniel and his three friends. But as, as we look at this, and I, I mentioned we're not going to get to some of the things that happen. But as, as we look at this passage, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is, is a sharp guy. Uh, in verse 3, he commands this man named Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, uh, to, to go and get some of Israel's youth from royal family and nobility. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's not a good guy, but he's an intelligent guy. Sin really isn't a matter of a lack of intelligence. Uh, some of the most depraved minds have been, unfortunately, some of the most intelligent uh, when you look through history. In fact, even now, there are brilliant people who can do things with computers and cause all kinds of havoc. And they'll get great computer experts to try to undo what these guys have done, and they really struggle with it. It's not that they're stupid, it's just that they're evil. And they've got bad intentions. And when we think of Nebuchadnezzar, that's kind of what we've got going on here. It's not that he's stupid. He's just got some really bad intentions. And he gives this command, go, go and bring these youth to me and bring me the good ones. Don't bring me that riffraff that hangs out in Jerusalem. You bring me the good ones, the well-connected ones. Bring me the respected ones. The ones who are intelligent enough that we can teach. Even the good-looking ones. Bring me them. And then here's what we're going to do. And, and we see this game plan that he's got laid out. And, and this is the same game plan that Babylon lays out time and time again. The first thing he does is he goes and brings these people to Babylon and basically isolates them. Isolates and, and outnumbers. Here's his plan. Get them out of Israel. we got to get them away from their families. Get them away from their heritage. Get them away from their teachers. And certainly get them away from that temple that's in Jerusalem. We can't have them there. we got to bring them here. 
get them away from any influence that would mold their lives or their characters in the way of their God. We got to bring them here, isolate them, overpower them with numbers. And this is a continual battle. The world, Babylon, really likes to eliminate any godly influence in our lives. And we see that quite often play out. And that's why we make the effort to, like Daniel will do, to pray and to look at scripture and to meet together. Because we have to make that effort. The world will try to keep out any of those godly influences that it can. That's what Babylon does. And that's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. You bring them here. And then we got them. And then the next thing we'll do is we'll indoctrinate them into our ways. Uh, when you look at verse 4 towards the end of it, teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, it seems uh, harmless that Daniel uh, and his friends would learn the language of the Chaldeans or even the literature. In fact, there's good evidence that they probably do learn the language. It's, it's not that the learning is the problem here, but, but what Nebuchadnezzar wants is he wants to retrain them to think like Babylonians. But Daniel's not going to lose his perspective. He's going to remember his God. But Nebuchadnezzar, he says, or his thought is this, if we can get them to see things from our perspective, not from their perspective, not from their God's perspective, if, if I can say it that way for sure, but get them to view life separate from or, or without the God of Israel. Just get them to think of life apart from the God of Israel. We'll have them see a world without a creator. We, we get that a lot. See the world, but don't see the creator. We'll teach them what love is, but we're not going to let them know who the God of love is. We get that. We want them to see things the way we see things. We'll indoctrinate them in our ways and get them thinking what it might look like so that their first thought is not thinking of God, but, but thinking of other things. Doesn't want the God of Israel in their thoughts. There's no fear of God in, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, for sure. Uh, he thinks he's one. And of course, all of this is completely contrary to the Psalms. You know, the Psalms tell us to dwell and delight in God's love. It tells us to meditate on his word, meditate on his law, to see him in all creation. There's some wonderful Psalms. Seeing God in all of creation the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, to, to see the world and see God in it. But Nebuchadnezzar said, let's try to get them to see the world without their God. And it's, it's the same playbook that keeps playing out. 
even to today. And then the next step is we'll get them to compromise. In verse 5, assign them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Now, there is some disagreement about why Daniel's going to refuse to eat the king's food. And there are ideas, and and they're good ideas. Some say uh, unclean food. Maybe he's serving them bacon, uh, shellfish, or something. But but it's unclean food. Uh, Some say it may have been offered to idols, and and they're not going to eat it because of that. But I think a big part of the story, and, and that all may be true, but a big part of the story, I think, for Daniel is that he, he perceives this, this effort to seduce him and his friends into this Babylonian lifestyle of pleasure. If you live with a certain uh, degree of pleasure, and then the focus will kind of turn in on themselves a little bit and on their enjoyment and they will, if I can use the term, they'll, they'll get soft. You know, for those of you in the old Rocky movies, it happened to Apollo Creed and it, it happened to, to Rocky. Uh, they, they got cha- the, their championships and they got rich and then they got soft. You know, you need the eye of the tiger. Uh, if you remember that movie, you're soft, Rocky. And, and that's what Daniel perceives happening here is, is they'll have this, this enjoyment this, this pleasure, and they'll focus on that, and they'll get soft. Now, notice in all of this that there's really no mention of confronting Daniel with Babylonian theology. It's not like he's, they're saying, well, we're going to come up with these arguments against your God, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll battle on a theological level. This is much more subtle than that, just as Babylon is always much more subtle than that. In fact, uh, I love, uh, this is Sinclair Ferguson. I love what he says about this. He writes, somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and position in society are usually sufficient are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. That's all you got to do. Offer them some comfort, some self-esteem, position in society, some good times, and you're going to make a real good bid for their heart and their soul. Advertising agencies know this. I mean, that, that's what advertising's all about. Do this. Good times. Do this. You got comfort. Do this. Everyone will love you. Do this. Everyone will look at you a little better. And if advertising agents know it, well then certainly the king of Babylon knows it and uses it. The god of Babylon, if I can use that imagery again. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So we'll get them to compromise a little bit. And then we got them. And then also, we're going to confuse them a little. Make them question their identity. He gives them new names. He doesn't call them Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah anymore. And and they can't because those names all reflect something about 
their God. Uh, we won't go too deep into it, but basically Daniel means God is my judge. There's this idea of, of God is the Holy One, the Holy Judge. Hananiah, uh, Yah has been gracious, which is uh, short for Yahweh, Jehovah. God has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. It talks of the power of God. And, and we can't have them with these kinds of names. They give them different names. And if you were to look at those names, you'll find hints of the Babylonian deities uh, in these names that they give them. Let's confuse them. Let's, let's uh, confuse their identity. Let's have them forget the God in whose image they're made and give them names of these other gods so they don't really remember whose they are anymore. Of course, identity confusion is huge in Babylon today. But the idea is this, get them to think like Babylonians and before long, they'll act like Babylonians. It's a brilliant plan. And the principle still holds true today. We can see it in varying degrees, and it, it always has been. It's not that today is that much worse than other times. It always just takes a different twist. The playbook stays the same. And as I mentioned, Daniel's not going to conform. He knows whose he is. He knows he's a child of God. And so he's willing to do things a little different way. And willing to take the stand that he needs to take the stand, not just to be disagreeable, not just to be different, but because he knows he's God's. And that message is true for us today. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes this, You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You are Christ's. Those words are easy to say, and, and we probably say them often, but I don't know that we always stop and think about what that really means. You are Christ's. And in the next verse, Paul writes, this is how one should regard us. And let me add, this is how we need to regard ourselves. We are Christ's. Paul also writes in Galatians 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are Christ's, a child of promise. You're bought by his blood. Yes, you, we all were separated from God because of our sin, but Christ bought us by his blood. We have been redeemed and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we are God. That's something we need to remind ourselves when we get up Monday morning and come home Monday evening and get up every day of the week and think, I am God's. Because we know the playbook of Babylon is the same. It will try to isolate 
Make us feel outnumbered. Make us feel that there's no hope, that, that we have nothing but to fear because the battle is over. Babylon has won. Or maybe, but look at it, God's on the losing side and we get that message a lot. But remember, as Daniel remembers, God's really in control of this whole thing. Nebuchadnezzar really thought he had won. The world really thinks it's winning. But never forget this. God is sovereign and you are God's. The world would like us to get used to thinking of life without God. Doesn't always have to argue theology with us. Just wants us to imagine life without God. See the world without God Compromise a little bit. Here's some good times. Compromise, and pretty soon we'll change our identity. It's the same, same playbook. Take on this worldly identity and forget that we're God's children. That's what Babylon would love to have us do. Forget who we are. But again, I say, as I quote Paul, you are Christ's, and he is sovereign. And we may be a little different, but we're different for a holy purpose. It's because we are God's, and he loves us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you have purchased us by the blood of Christ and we are yours. May we never lose sight of that fact. Day in and day out, as Babylon tries to beat us down, Lord, may we come to you and be filled with your Holy Spirit and remember that we are yours. The eternal, sovereign God of the universe who loves us. We give you thanks, and we pray this in Jesus' name.